You're listening to Catholic Chicago on WNDZ 750 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you programs about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for joining our program here this morning. The taping today to air, or taping on Friday to tear on Monday, Martin Luther King uh, Day, because uh, the building here is closed on Monday. So uh, we have an interesting lineup uh, this morning talking about uh, some of the things that have been going on at the federal and state level. Um, a lot of it, obviously, is related to uh, coronavirus and um, what's going on with uh, policymakers' response to it. Um, just on a, a brief note, a uh, lot of changes in Springfield this past week. Uh, have a new Speaker of the House, um, Representative Chris Welch, just uh, uh, selected by his peers to be the new Speaker. A long-term Speaker Mike Madigan is no longer uh, the Speaker of the House, since that brings a lot of changes uh, to the legislature. We'll be talking about that in our next program. And uh, so many other uh, things coming up on the new year here. But uh, what we want to do this morning is kind of sort of review what's happened in the past couple weeks and then chart a course going forward uh, about some opportunities that Congress has made available to us, as well as um, what the response has been um, for our uh, Congress has been in response to helping our Catholic schools and uh, our Catholic parishes. And I think it's overall good news. Um, so let's go over the lineup here to this morning. We'll talk with Jennifer Daniels. Jennifer is the Associate Director for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. She's going to talk to us about some of those uh, changes at the federal level that are going to assist Catholic schools and parishes. Then we're going to move uh, more local and talk to uh, Justin Lombardo. He's been very involved with um, actually administering the changes that have allowed Catholic schools to continue operating since the outbreak of the pandemic, um, since the return to school back in September. And Justin's going to join us at about mm, 20 after. And then finally, we'll close the show with uh, a success from the recently concluded lame duck session in Springfield. Abe Scar, he's the state director of Illinois PERG, which is an interest group that has to do with uh, advocating against predatory loan uh, businesses. And we we, uh, were successful, um, along with his organization, to put some caps on um, what can be charged for a predatory uh, payday loan. So anyway, um, that'll be at about, ooh, let's do that about 20 to the hour, I guess. And then I'll make some comments maybe about, uh, if time permitting, about where we're going with the state legislative session this year, as if anybody knows what's going to happen in the legislative session this year. So um, without further ado, let's bring in our first guest. Our first guest is Jennifer Daniels. Um, she has some title, uh, director, associate director uh, of public policy at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. She is the person we go to on a lot of issues, and she's going to talk to us a little bit about what Congress just did uh, in December, I think it was. Jennifer, are you with us? Yes. Hi there. Hey, good morning. Good to uh, good talk morning. to you again. Um, if it's not via email, uh, all your many updates to us all across the country. And thank you for uh, just taking some of your Christmas uh, break there in December to uh, keep us all apprised and advocate for uh, Catholic schools in our parishes. Um, Jennifer, you're, most of your work is in the education realm, right? 
Yes. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought. If you are you you're not director of public policy. You're education, correct? I think I gave the wrong title, but whatever. Right. So I am associate associate director for public policy, but within the secretariat Got of it. Catholic education. Good. Good. So my uh, little brain is correct, thinking I, I associate you with education. So good. I'm on the right track. So I was going to call you about other issues now. <laughs> so you just got out of some work. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about um, what our fearless leaders in Congress did back in, uh, it was December, right? It was right before Christmas, if I recall, about the, uh, um, they did help, they tried to help, I think, um, both parishes and, and, and Catholic schools by additional funding. Yeah, absolutely. So um, they Obviously, our schools did participate in the CARES Act that was um, passed back in the spring, but many of our schools um, experienced problems with the implementation of that and limited access. And in fact, some of our schools didn't get any funding at all under that program. So we were working for a different model the second go around. And what we really wanted was a set-aside, dedicated uh, grant fund that would be specifically for non-public schools that would not... Uh, have the opportunity for some of the um, limitations that we experienced in the past. And so we were um, advocating for um, a percentage of whatever that fund that went to all education would be designated for non-public schools. And what we ended up with was $2.75 billion. And this was given in the form of the governor's emergency fund. And so the money was given at the state level and will be implemented at the state level, uh, separate from all other K-12 programs um, exclusively for the non-public schools. So the first time we did this back in the spring, I think it was um, when the first CARES Act passed right after the pandemic, um, there was some money in the first CARES Act put uh, aside for, for non-public schools. But I think what that's what you're saying. We had some problems with that and the way it was the guidelines for it coming out of both Congress and from the United States, United States Department of Education. At the end of the day, it, it, I think it resulted in our inability for us to, to capture what we were kind of hoping we would sort of get a little bit more money than we actually did. Yeah, absolutely. When the funding first came out, there was a provision called equitable services, which means a share, an equitable share of the funding is supposed to go to non-public schools. But they did, in the language, designate the funding allocations at the state level to be calculated exclusively on a low-income student count, um, which would target the money to to states and and districts based on that low-income count. Where there was the question was, okay, well, how do you count the the non-public schools or students within the non-public schools? And initially, the guidance came out saying that, well, all children should be counted and included. Um, And there was a series of lawsuits and a lot of political fighting. And it was then changed after implementation had begun to say that only Catholic or private schools that had participated and had students that qualified for uh, the Title I program, which is a program designated ex- uh, for, for academic improvement for low-income children, uh, that is the count that would determine allocations for equitable services for non-public schools, um, which, you know, we were, are always fine for, you know, giving additional help to our low-income schools. But, in fact, this uh, created huge kind of bureaucratic barriers uh, and tied emergency response funds to 
previous participation in this program as opposed to ensuring that all children had access to these health and safety measures that were provided in the corona package. So it did end up with um, you know, some of our schools being completely excluded from the CARES Act. So it seems this time around, the one that passed in December under, I'll just label it, you know, CARES Act number two, um, yeah. it seems like this is just a, a little bit um, easier for us to access that money. Um, now, but the governors do have to apply for that money. So if the governor doesn't apply, then nothing happens, correct? Correct. The yeah. deadline for governors to apply is February 8th, and it is vital that our state and local leaders um, work with their uh, governor's office to get that application in on time um, so that we can participate. And we are working on that here in Illinois, just so everybody knows. <laughs> this is one of the things I spent my day yesterday doing, and we're, we're, we're making progress, but we, we don't know yet. So let's hope and pray that uh, Governor Pritzker does apply for that money. Do you, Jennifer, do you have any idea how much money that could potentially be in, in like, like maybe per Per student or something like that? Is, is there any projections on what that $2.75 billion comes down to? Well, as with everything Congress does, it's not right. uh, clean and simple. Uh, to target the funds to low-income children again, which, you know, we have we have always supported um, extra help for low-income students. But there's also another provision that says that the governors should target the funds to the schools that are deemed in the most need, which is incredibly subjective and not really thoroughly explained. <laughs> so um, it, it will, you know, the application itself that the uh, schools submit on behalf, you know, of uh, the that they're requesting to participate, they will need to demonstrate, you know, show that need themselves. So uh, that could be in the form of, um, we just got guidance literally today from the United States Department of Education that helped explain that a little bit more. Um, and they cited, uh, you know, a loss of enrollment or expenditures that they used to reopen their schools or to convert to an online learning. So um, it will be up to the states to clarify that for our schools, but there are um, these kind of weighted mm -hmm. criteria within the application that makes it a little bit less clear. However, if you just do, you know, kind of the simple math, right. you know, yeah. the amount of money divided up by the number of children, yeah. you know, I think a ballpark range would be maybe between $400 and $600 okay. per student could That's be... An, a possible average, you know, yeah. taking, not taking into account all of this waiting that would be done. Yeah, I mean, that, that it, whatever, I mean, even in that ballpark figure, you know, if you have a school of, what, 200 kids, that's, um, you know, yeah. that's, that's real money. That's, uh, what, $80,000? Is that right? Or am I doing a, um, one, two, three, four? Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah and, and that goes to PPE, uh, you know, a personal mm -hmm. protective equipment, cleaning supplies. And as we're going to talk with our next guest, I mean, the, the amount of money that's been uh, outlaid is significant um, to, right. to keep these children in school and make sure there's, the schools are clean and, and all those things you have to do that, that <laughs> no one's ever had to do before, uh, not to mention um, adjusting of space and that kind of thing. So, right. in the so let me just add that one really important uh, new provision of this legislation that was not a part of the CARES Act, that our schools can actually apply for reimbursement for the funds that they have spent out of pocket that are COVID related. Mm. So that is an important part of the application is them submitting that information and, and requesting to get reimbursed for those expenses. Um, now, due to the language that says, you know, we are not, uh, uh, the control of funds stays with the governors and we're not direct recipients of federal funding, things that get reimbursed uh, 
then uh, do uh, really become the property of the state. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Because we're not allowed to receive those direct funding. Uh, if you purchase computers, um, those computers will then become the property of the state um, because they have been reimbursed under this under this process. Yeah, so we're going to have to be diligent on and vigilant on watching what that money gets spent for. Um, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's with every program, no matter what it is, but I think that's the case here. There's kind of a, a an interesting wrinkle, though, in the... Uh, I'm going to, once again, describe this as the CARES Act, too. Um, but parishes are going to have to do some uh, calculating because... They have an option. Um, they can mm-hmm. take another PPP loan, or they can take this money that you've described, part of the education system. I, I suppose this only pertains to parishes with schools that have to make this kind of calculation. But so, what what what's going on now is um, with further information coming out. I think uh, individual parishes are going to have to determine whether it's most advantageous to seek a, another PPP loan or mm-hmm. the education money that you just outlined, because you cannot do both. That was one of correct. the wrinkles in the in the in Co- CARES Act number two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct. And there are you know a ton of factors to that the mm-hmm. schools and parishes will need to look at. I mean, first and foremost is that the uses of the funds are almost completely different. So it, the PPP is targeted towards salaries, most first and foremost, yeah, um, being able to pay teachers. You cannot do that with the uh, the emergency, the, the governor's fund, I'll just call it the governor's mm-hmm. fund. Um, and so that money is specifically tied more to health and safety measures and precautions that are taken for our students and addressing some of the academic need that might have come from, you know, COVID-related closures and things like that. So that would be kind of, you know, the first thing that they would want to look at is, is what, what is the need that that school and parish has? Yeah, and, and these are things that people are going to have to start getting on pretty quickly because uh, those deadlines are now going to s- start creeping up on folks. But we still have a little bit of time, but it's a decision that has to be made out there. So with that said, we thought we were uh, uh, we're very grateful um, for your work and for Congress uh, to uh, keep in mind the needs of, of non-public schools and, and, and parishes and the PPP loan. And now we have, uh, as of what, yesterday, the announcement of um, President-elect Biden's, what, are we, what is he on, $1.9 trillion uh, <laughs> coronavirus relief plan. So is there any talk now of, of additional funding or, or do we where, where is this money coming from? <laughs> I want to I want to be there. Um, uh, so yeah. your taxpayer dollars. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a little daunting to think about what we're doing here. But so is there any further talk now of, of additional relief or do you think this could be it or is it still in the soup? Well, there was no specific mention of non-public schools in the document that the Biden team released. So the short answer is we don't know. Um, But there wasn't explicit language saying that we can't participate. So um, that's where we are at at the moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see where where this goes from here. It seems to me like what what your um, statement is that it it appears that this is more the the, the round that was just recently talked about. And it's just talk at this stage. I think it's just it's nothing more than just a press release and and his comments that um, it it seems to me it's mostly going towards um, unemployment insurance extension. Um, I think there was talk about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour Mm -hmm. um, and and then increasing the amount of money that individuals get from the current $600 
that was just approved in two, uh, it would go up to $2,000. So it would be an additional $1,400 per person, I suppose. Is that what that is that what I understand? Mm -hmm. And is it the same criteria they're going to use or has that even been talked about yet? Yeah, we we have what we have seen up to this point is just kind of a a summary narrative of the plan. Not there is there's not legislative language that I've seen yet that goes into all of that level of detail. Specifically, for education, it's a in dollars for education that was itemized in his plan, which is um, our last one was eighty billion dollars, and the one before that was fifty billion, a little over fifty billion dollars. So now we're looking at one hundred and seventy billion dollars yeah. for education. Is um is is it been your experience? Just um, you've been very involved with this, and uh, the the updates we get from USCCB, from Jennifer, and from her colleagues are, are very good. Is it been just out of curiosity in this coronavirus environment? Um, working from home and not being in the office very much and communicating with people on Capitol Hill and the administration and, and with members of Congress, is it added a complexity that that normally wouldn't be there for you? I mean, it, the, the, the way we're communicating is so different today. I'm just curious if you have any take on, on how it's been for you. Um, I would say it's been easier. Really? Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, um, when I when we go to Capitol Hill and we want to have meetings, you know, the physical act of just getting there, you know, it's a, our, our building is about a 20-minute drive yeah. from the United mm-hmm. States Capitol. you got to park. you got to walk. These are very large buildings. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, one meeting on Capitol Hill that normally lasts about 15, 20 minutes on average, you know, takes a good hour of my time to, like, Interesting. get that yeah. accomplished, whereas... You know, these past weeks, sometimes I've had five, six, seven Capitol Hill meetings back to back, back to back, back to back over the phone or over Zoom. And, you know, we're able to accomplish a lot um, in a short amount of time. Now, that being said, there's, you know, nothing that does replace those good personal relationships that you develop. There's, you know, usually not as much kind of chat and getting to know you on a Zoom call as there might have been in person. So we do, do we do miss that? But I will say, um, you know, our our government staff that we work with, whether it's in the administration or on Capitol Hill, I mean, they have definitely been working around the clock. And yeah. um, the leadership of our Office of Government Relations, you know, they, they've they been working around the clock um, and are just, you know, constantly, constantly having conversations back and forth. So. And, and it was funny because I was just talking to one of my colleagues coming in, and, and now you're going to go through the same thing that we, we go through here all too often is now you have a whole new set of relationships that you have to build come January 20th, yeah. the new administration coming in. So it's just it, for, for people who do what Jennifer does and what I do, this is the things we deal with. And it sounds sort of trite, but it is it takes some time to develop relationships with people in the incoming administration. And then the, those you've built with the outcoming administration, that's over. And so it's, it's just this awkward right. time for a lot of us. And we were experiencing that here. Um, changes in the General Assembly. And now I, I don't know if you heard my opening comment, but our Speaker of the House has been mm-hmm. is leaving after 36 years in that office. So, yeah, it's, wow. it's, a, it's a very interesting time. Um, and, and we're all doing this kind of electronically. <laughs> it's awkward. Well, yeah. And we have, you know, with the, with the Senate changing, all of the committees are going to right. change. There you go. New committee chairman. Right. That means all the, all the staff leaves the committee. We get new committee staff. So um, we've got a lot, a lot of changes. Yeah, exactly. We have, you know, just figuring out. That's why I'm so glad we have such a wonderful team in the Office of Government Relations, the CCB, because they know how to find those, find the right person, and 
um, make sure we're talking to the right person on a, on a specific issue. And there'll be lots and lots of lists coming out. And yeah. we gotta, you know, we don't even know who all of the members of the committees are going to be at this point. So. That's right. Yeah. Just to make, and, and, and then, oh, by the way, you got to allocate $1.9 trillion on top of that. Okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> all in a day's work. Jennifer, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Uh, we enjoy your insights. We enjoy your updates. And thanks and keep up the great work. Thanks so much. Thank you for all you do. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Don't go away, everybody. We'll be right back. We're going to talk to Justin Lombardo. He's the guy that uh, implements some of these changes that have Jennifer has been uh, advocating for funding for. So uh, we're going to talk to Justin here in a minute. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's a new year. Many of us are making goals, trying to stay healthy, and planning for ways to make the most of every day during and after the pandemic. At Catholic Charities, we continue to meet people who are struggling to meet their basic needs, like housing, food, and stability in their lives. In these challenging times, the face of need is your neighbor, and the face of hope is you. Imagine how the world would look if we all saw each other as neighbors. Learn more at catholiccharities.net. The Cemetery Ministry is a core ministry of our Catholic faith tied to the corporal works of mercy. It's comforting to know that our Catholic cemeteries are caring for the remains of our loved ones awaiting the resurrection. There are 44 Archdiocese of Chicago Catholic cemeteries willing to help you in your time of loss. Call 708-449-6100 or visit catholiccemeterychicago.org. Catholic Cemeteries, serving the Catholic community since 1837. Do you have a gently used laptop or desktop computer that is gathering dust in your home? Consider donating to our Catholic Charities Veterans Computer Project. We will clean out your device, give it new software, and repurpose it for a veteran who is looking for employment. Your gift will make an incredible difference in a veteran's ability to find a job. Catholic Charities provides veteran services throughout Lake and suburban Cook Counties, giving participants an array of professional and personal support. Our veterans have served our country, and it is our privilege to serve them. To learn more about Catholic Charities Veterans Services and the Veterans Computer Project, call 847-782-4219. That's Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for listening to our show here this morning on this Martin Luther King holiday. We're kind of focused on our schools and our parishes here this morning, which is a good focus to have. And uh, I'm pleased to be joined here on the second segment of the show uh, with Justin Lombardo. 
He is the Chief Human Resources and Staff Development Officer. How's that for a title? For the Archdiocese of Chicago. He's better known as the guy that's making sure that the kids are safe going back to school in my world. Justin, how are, how are you? I'm fine, Bob. Yeah, it's a mouthful. I, it, it your titles me, are ridiculous. <laughs> yes, it reminds me of the old days when I first started uh, my, my job career, my working career. Uh, we were told, remember, the longer the title, the less important. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. So yeah, yeah. But I am also the, uh, as you, you, you point out, everybody just calls me the COVID guy. Yeah, okay, the yeah, yeah I, 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 there you go. So as everybody I know, who knows me knows, I'm a regular reader of the Journal of Public Health and Management Journal. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it you is, want my job? <laughs> I've never heard of that, but I, it sounds good, and, and I'm, <laughs> it's a respected academic publication. Yes, and, I know it. I and, know the journal. And so we're here to talk about uh, an article that was co-authored by uh, somebody who I think people may, who may not recognize their name, but I'm sure they recognize their face, Dr. Allison Arwadi. She's the person on TV constantly talking about the coronavirus. She's the head of the Chicago Department of Public Health. Right. She co-authored this study, and um, it has a lot to do with the work that you have been leading— um, at the Arch to help uh, children continue to learn in person during a pandemic, right. which is something I'm sure you've spent your whole life preparing for, as none of us have. <laughs> um, tell us, if you can, a little bit about the study that uh, that was put forth. So, um, and, and let's clarify, um, uh, Dr. Arwadi co-authored it with um, Drs. Um, uh, Frischon and Sao. Okay. Uh, both of I them, know. Uh, Michelle, or I'm sorry, Marielle uh, Frischon and Jennifer Sell, both of whom are uh, senior uh, physicians in uh, uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health. Mm -hmm. And those two are are actually our closest contacts. We work with the two of them um, almost daily. I'm either on phone contact or email contact with them, and they have been superb supports. So the the study is really an observational model. study rather than, hmm. uh, so I don't want people to become confused as if it, we, we did, um, you know, a double blind yeah, study yeah, with a right. control group. It's right. not the same thing. Right. Um, so this study looked to say, okay, here's what we know about what seems to be, what, se- what, what are mitigation strategies that seem to quell the infection rate of the virus. How then can you use and apply those, and can you, in an in-person learning environment hmm. so that children and staff can be safe for in-person learning? So if you look at what the study was really about, it was saying, here's what we know. Here are our classic mitigation strategies. We also know uh, that, that the uh, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics has said since last summer Get kids in school. Right. Otherwise, you hurt their development. So both those, and you see the tension of that in the study as as you look at it, that that they're saying, hey, you've got two competing goods. You've got the good of the Mm -hmm. development of the kids, but also uh, the safety of everybody because of this horrific virus. And so what do you do? So they looked at us as a model, saying, how did we apply it? Uh, Because we began working with them very early on, and we are, I believe, either the largest or one of the largest private school systems that went to immediately to reopening our schools. For So our goal was in-person learning, and I think we were either the largest or second largest in the U.S. 
of private school systems to do that. And I want to make a differentiation. So I think the, the, the critical thing here is um, I don't want to see us getting into a comparative thing about uh, the public school systems and the Catholic yeah, school sure. system because right. the systems have different characteristics. They're very different. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we are the Catholic school system. We're large. And so they, since they knew they were working with us and actually helped us early on look at and develop our safety protocols, and our mitigation strategies, they came and said, how's it going? How's it working? And what can you tell us about yeah. how, it's, how well it's worked? How did you guys develop those practices? That's, 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 that's really kind of the, 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 the million-dollar question. So we looked, at, we looked at what we knew. We looked at the mitigations, and, and we looked at what the data were from uh, CDC, the IDPH, Illinois Department of Public Health, as well as our local uh, uh, the Department Chicago. of Departments of Public Health. Well, we looked at Chicago, we looked at Cook County, and we looked at Lake County, and sort of said, "All right, so what? What? What are we being told?" Well, we were being told uh, that that you, you you have to create social distance, you have to mask. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. IDPH said you have to take temperatures if you want kids in mm-hmm. and do that. So we looked at all that data. Um, and all those practices, and said, okay, how do we then create a guide for constructing that safe learning environment in Catholic schools? And, and, and uh, you know, one of the questions that came up right away is, okay, should we, should we really dedicate ourselves to getting the kids back in school? Really? You know, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure, you know, and a lot of people said mm-hmm. that, should, you know, wouldn't it be safer to keep them out? Well, again, you're really working, Bob, as you know, with competing goods there. Yep. Um, uh, we, we surveyed their parents, and they said 87% of them said they want the kids in school. Right. I remember talking to Jim Rigg about that early yeah. on, and yeah. he said this is what they want. This is what they want. Right. And th- but that's not the only thing. I'm, I'm sorry, let me mm-hmm. just finish, and then we can no, go on. But, go. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the only the the only guide there because that 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 would be insufficient for a um, a Catholic school system. Just the, the that the only guiding principle was what the parents wanted. The other thing was what, uh, as I mentioned, the American Academy of Pediatrics told us uh, and told the world that that it's it's not good for development for the kids to be out. And then the third thing is looking at our mission as schools representing the Catholic Church. And we have a mission in the Archdiocese to give witness to the gospel, to create disciples. These are critical things that we need to do in the Catholic schools. And it's really hard to look after that spiritual development of the kids if they're remote. So all those things together told us we need to develop things uh, uh, for the schools and the parishes. And so we we developed the guidelines, but then we had to develop a system to help the schools. It's, it's no good simply to throw, and by the way, we followed a similar process with our parishes, which we opened before the schools. So you can't just throw out guidelines and say, oh, by the way, open your mailbox, uh, your email box, and read the guidelines and have a nice day. Go set up your school. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we created teams uh, from the Central Office of Catholic Schools and the Archdiocese generally to help principals understand what the guidelines were, how to set things up, we created certification processes for the schools, the parishes, and the church, um, and the schools. And any time we had to deviate from the guidance at all, the guidelines, we had hired uh, to work with us two professors of infectious disease medicine from uh, in the Chicago area. They're faculty members um, at, at the Feinberg School of Medicine. Uh, both, I think, are associate 
professors, um, as well as practicing uh, infectious disease doctors who were immersed in this in this topic. Um, they both, by the way, were parents of school-age children. Mm-hmm. So we thought that was the that was the right profile to get. The the, the I'm I'm more familiar direct personal experience with with the, the protocols as you go to, mm-hmm. to mass than I am with with the school. Right. But I, I will tell you, I, I've said to friends of mine, I think the safest place to be is in a Catholic church. I, <laughs> I I think it's been excellent. I mean, it it's it's it, at least at my parish, I can't say enough good things about it. Do I like it? No, of course I don't like it. Right. But I, we have to recognize what's going on around us. And 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 I I can't I I say to people all the time, there's no excuse not to go to church. It's the safest place that I think you can be. It's They're very cognizant of, of what's going on, but it's not like, at least um, I go to St. Julian's, it's not like so, ah, this is a bad word, it's not so burdensome that, that you get put off by it. You have to recognize, yeah, you have to distance, but it's no big deal. I mean, it, it's very well done, and I think you, people, you know, they spray your hands and walk in before communion, and everything right. seems to be, everybody's got masks on, no one seems to be bucking the system, people are people are kind about it. It's 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 been very good. I'm, I'm very pleased the way it's gone at least well, in the parishes on a personal level. That's good. That's good to hear. And, you know, again, with the parishes, it was the same thing. We set up safety committees in the parish. Right. And, and one of the benefits of this, and, and I've got to say there's very few benefits in a pandemic, but one of the benefits were we engaged lay leaders in the parish in, to really take yeah. on a large part of the responsibility for doing this. And the response in most parishes was wonderful to see. It, yeah, I, um, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah, to see... To see uh, uh, it, it said to me as I watched it, because we visited parishes as well to certify them, as I watched that, I went, you know, anybody who ever questioned whether or not the Catholic laity own their church, look at these people. That's a good point. Yeah. It was you the know? laity that did it. If you see, yeah, exactly. I mean, right. it was the laity. It was the laity that did it. And they wanted to be there, and they wanted to make it safe for others to come. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, I would extend to say that Many of our teachers, the vast majority of our teachers and administrators, had that same sense about their children in school. Yeah, that's our terrific. teachers wanted to teach. Uh, the vast majority. Now, some, you know, there was publicity, and and some didn't. Some were fearful. No, that's perfectly right. Perfectly legit. Yeah, right. Um, but the vast majority have been in the classroom from day one, working. They were jittery the first couple days, and who isn't? I remember the first time they lifted. Right. Remember when they lifted the. Uh, stay-at-home order, yep. and for the first time, people could go back to the grocery stores right. or go out for walks. That was scary. Yep. That was scary for, for many, everybody. For many. But you get over mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, so, so anyway, that's, that's what we do. Now, the, the other thing to get back to the schools, and the article pointed this out, and it's really important, it's not just setting up the, uh, the, the uh, mitigation strategies and then just walking away and say it's one and done. It's not. Mm-hmm. These are constantly monitored constantly adjusting to new uh, guidance we get, to, to the new science that comes out. Revised. Uh, yeah. Right, revised. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, quarantine times. Right now I'm, uh, we're dealing with, our task force is dealing with a change in the quarantine guidelines post-travel. Right. So that means we have to look, but it applies differently to adult situations than it does to classrooms. So, you know, we have to do this. So there's that. You have to constantly be vigilant and constantly be in contact with the scientific experts. And I will say, uh, uh, and this is a shout-out to Dr. Arwadi and um, uh, Dr. Frischone and Dr. Sal, as well as our colleagues, Dr. Rachel Rubin at the Cook County 
uh, Department of Public Health and several of our colleagues at Lake County that they have been partnered with us from the very beginning. And that makes all the difference uh, for this. And down to now, we did our part. We've hired a team of people that trace exposures and cases, both in our parishes and in our schools. So we are vigilant. And I think the, the, uh, the, the study, the brief study uh, pointed that out. We quarantine children immediately if they're in contact, if they meet the definition of close contact with a positive case. The child is out. The child is required to go to remote learning for the 14 days of exposure. If a teacher or staff member or student is in the classroom and they are positive, then the whole cohort, and we worked cohorts, and that's right. an important concept as well. Yep. We don't have kids moving around. Right. They're in, they're in that classroom. They right. don't intermingle like with each other. Right. This is who you got. <laughs> That's right. It's like the military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. This is look it. around, look to your right and your right. left. These are now your best buddies right. for every day, for every activity. Right, right. exactly. Um, and so that allows us to move quickly and keep track of this. We, we, I've got to say, you know, we sometimes have unhappy parents who say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. It's like, well, but it's still here are the, here are the mitigation strategies, so there is a quarantine. And what we found and what the, what the study also found, which I think is, is wonderful, is that we've had cases in schools, which we knew we were going to, yep. as we did in parishes. But guess what? The transmission rate of in-school transmissions appears to be exceptionally low. Yeah. If you read the study carefully, they talk about two metrics there, right? The first one is how many times were there more than one case within a cohort or a school that's a it's it's a a decent sized number but then the second measure is how many times can those be traced to in-school transmission and that's where our numbers are very small the vast majority over 97 percent of our positive cases in our schools and churches are related to outside activities that's what we were hearing right yeah and and yep. that really, to your point early on, the two safest places to be right now are Catholic churches or Catholic schools. That's ter- yeah, it's great to hear. That's a great message. It's a great message. Um, so it seems um, communication was a big factor, too, in terms of just keeping everybody apprised about what was going on and keeping make sure that the teachers were aware of it and the parents. Right. And everybody kind of had the same uh, same information. And and I think what you're saying is that overall this this has gone very well. I remember at the beginning of this uh, talking to Dr. Rigg a few times, and you know him saying, "Well, you know, we're, we're, we hope to get to you know <laughs> hope to get to the fall, hope right, to get to whatever." Try. That's we're right. Gonna we're going to try. We can make it through. Exactly. And, and I'll tell you, it's funny. I did not call. Dr. Rigg for the longest time because I figured, you know, I didn't want to jinx it. We're doing well. Right, <laughs> so exactly. I, I mean, if there's no, I don't hear it anything. And we would hear periodically of incidents. I can tell you my own parish, one of the priests got it. So we had to close down. We couldn't have mass right. for two weeks. And, and, he, and he got it from not anybody at our parish, but he got it from an outside source. And so, right. yeah, but we dealt with it and two weeks went on and, and we're back to normal. So it can happen. And I think this has been a great uh, learning opportunity 
for all of us to to know that I think what you started saying at the beginning is we start out on our mission and keeping that in mind and keeping in mind our obligation um, to keep parents kids safe, uh, continue learning, and you know with a little divine intervention, son of gun, we we we're, it looks like we're going to be okay. I, I mean, God willing, we're not there yet, but I think there's light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. And what's the what's the uh, the uh, the great old adage from uh from your mouth to God's ears. Exactly. I think exactly. That's a, I exactly. think that's exactly it. Exactly. And the other group that I, I want to highlight too, uh, Bob, and I apologize for interrupting you, but no. uh, mm-hmm. our parents and the families, by and large, have been exceptionally cooperative. Yeah. But none of this would work without them. Yeah. And I understand how frustrating it gets for them, and and it's it's a big decision to say, am I willing to risk my child going back into a classroom? Yeah. You know, so along yeah. with the teachers and the staff, it's been good. So. Justin, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Very informative. Uh, like I said, I mean, what is today? January, uh, we're mid-January. January 15th. You can see exactly. the light at the end of the tunnel. Keep in there. Do, keep doing what you're doing. And uh, we, I think we're going to be okay. I can't believe I'm saying that. Let's hope, we, let's, let's <laughs> hope it happens. I think we will, too. Good. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Justin Lombardo from the, uh, well, we read his title earlier. He's responsible <laughs> for uh, trying to keep these kids safe and back and in school. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Don't go away. We're right back. We're going to talk about uh, some good legislation that passed in Springfield this lame duck session. Uh, it's regarding uh, putting some restrictions on predatory predatory loans. I can say that. Don't go away. We're right back. Catholic Charities After Supper Visions program offers guests of our Tuesday night supper the opportunity to learn the art of photography. These talented guests who are often experiencing homelessness are offered disposable digital cameras and they work with volunteer professional photographers to learn the basics of taking photos. Then the artists go out and capture images on film of anything they find to be beautiful or interesting in the world. Their photos are amazing. Visit AfterSupperVisions.com to learn more about the artists and their artwork. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, too. At After Supper Visions, we are developing film, talent, and hope. On Friday, January 22nd at 12 o'clock p.m., the Archdiocesan Mass for Life will be live-streamed from Holy Name Cathedral. Celebrated by Bishop Kevin Birmingham, along with priests from across the Archdiocese of Chicago, it will be held on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and the eve of the final event of the March for Life Chicago tour. Please join us. The Mass will be live-streamed on the Archdiocesan YouTube channel. For more information and to register to attend, please visit respectlifechicago events. It has been inspiring to see how individuals, families, and communities have found ways to help one another throughout 2020. At Catholic Charities, we usually have 35 to 40 events a year where we gather and enjoy time together in support of important programs and services while raising critical funds that allow us to respond to the growing number of people who are in need of the most basic necessities in life. Many of our events are now virtual. If you would like to be a sponsor for one of these events, please call 312-948-6864. That's 312-948-6864 
Also, visit us at catholiccharities.net slash events and follow us on social media too. We so look forward to when we can resume our events in person and reconnect with our friends and partners throughout Chicagoland. For now, please consider donating to Catholic Charities so our vital work can continue. Thousands of people in Chicago count on Catholic Charities every day. Please help us help them today. Learn more at catholiccharities.net. You're listening to Catholic Chicago on WNDZ 750 AM. Every Monday through Friday from 8 AM to 9 AM, the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago. Welcome back, everybody. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference of Illinois, and thanks for listening to the show here this morning on this Martin Luther King holiday. Uh, our next guest is uh, with a group called Illinois PIRG, P-I-R-G. I have to ask him what that stands for. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, a good thing that came out of the past legislative session, which is cracking down on some of the practices regarding predatory lending and payday loans. There's not a person listening to this that's going to be not going to be shocked when you hear what the prior law was before this bill passed. Uh, his name is Abe Scar. He's state director of Illinois PERG. Abe, are you with us? I am. Thanks hey, for having me. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. What does PERG stand for? I should know it's this. A, that's okay. It's a funny acronym. Uh, public Interest Research Group. I so we're that. a uh, citizen-funded yeah. public interest advocacy I organization. Knew, I should have known that one. So tell us a little bit about uh, a, a bit of a win here. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've been involved with this through the years on and off, um, trying to do something um, to pass legislation to crack down on some of the practices on small consumer loans, I think they're called. And if I remember early in my career, back in like the early 2000s, we were successful. Then it looks like they found a loophole and now we're chasing that. So tell us a little bit about what the legislature did and then let's kind of backtrack into the <laughs> into what these people do uh, in terms of usury laws, I, I would imagine. But go ahead. Tell us a little bit about the bill. So uh, a bill passed early Wednesday morning through the Illinois Senate after passing on Tuesday afternoon in the House um, that will cap all consumer loans, no matter what the loan is or who the lender is. There's a hard cap of 36 percent on That's all great. consumer loans. Yeah. And that may sound high. I, I wouldn't want to take out a credit card with a 36% interest rate. Um, but compared to what we've seen in uh, predatory lending operations in Illinois, uh, upwards of you know 297%. In 297%. Yes. Stop and think about that. Yeah. You, you borrow a dollar, you pay three back. $2, $2.97 back. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge step forward. And it's... Um, it was included in, in the, the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus's economic equity agenda. Um, and, you know, as we'll get into it, this has been a long, hard fight. And, um, you know, sir, I, I'll be honest, caught me by surprise that we were able to get this over the finish line. Me too. Um, uh, but very, very happy about that and, and pleased to have been able to work with the Catholic Conference um, this week and, and over the years to make it happen. Yeah, it's an, it's really uh... – 
Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. Hey, sometimes don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm looking at a chart here. Just talk about the current. Let's talk about the problem now. Um, it, it, you know, I was, I was describing this to my wife the other day, and she said, well, who could ever pay that back? And, and I don't have a good answer to that. I mean, even under 36% interest, who could, um, who could pay that kind of money back? I mean, what, what do these people do who take out these loans? Do they ever pay it back? Is it possible to pay it back? Some certainly do. Um, sometimes people have a short-term cash need, and they're they're in a position to pay it back. Um, <clears throat> if you know, with their payday coming up or something like that. But what we see more often is that these types of loans trap people in a cycle of debt. Um, people don't often just take out one of these loans; they end up taking four or five loans uh, yeah. <clears throat> um, over time, um, and. They don't necessarily ever pay back the principal. It's a way that the lender kind of keeps somebody trapped and hooked, just continuing to pay interest. And it becomes a drain on somebody who already is in a situation where they have low income. And the other thing I always talk about this, it's I don't I don't think most borrowers are, are stupid or don't understand what they're getting into. They're in a moment of crisis. They, they have an emergency medical bill, mm-hmm. um, a car accident. You know, something comes up and they have an immediate cash need and they're desperate. And um, <clears throat> right now these products have been, you know, available and heavily marketed. And, and so people in a moment of need turn to what they think is their only option and get trapped in, in a really uh, bad situation, an even worse situation um, through this cycle of, of debt. And they're generally located, the, the physical offices of these companies that do this, in, in extremely low po- in poverty, low-income areas. Um, right. And I was looking at a chart here that shows like sort of who takes out these types of loans, um, and it's broken down by zip code. Um, and it says payday alone amounts per 100 population, 100,000 population. So in Lincoln Park, which is obviously a, a fairly wealthy area, in the 60614 uh, zip code, it's about $126. In Chicago writ large, it's 390 But in Austin, which is a, a economically depraved area, it's the zip code is 60644. It's $1,393. So I mean, that, that, that's who's taking out these loans. I mean, it is a product that is designed to um, extract money from low-income populations. Um, if you're like me and you have a, you know, steady, uh, you know, sufficient paycheck and good credit, I, I would never need to turn to something like this. Um, it's only for people who who are in poverty already who have an immediate cash need, and that's that's the business model. And we're we're pleased that um, this predatory business model, um, hopefully with the signature from the governor, right. will be no yeah. be no more in Illinois. The um, Abe, talk a little bit about another portion of this is the car title loan business. Now yeah. that is also is that that's also included in this legislation, correct? Yeah, I mean it's it's everything. It's so, everything, right? Um, you know, we, we've had to, those of us who've worked on this have had to get to know these different types of loans because there were certain types of loans that were specifically licensed and allowed to, uh, you know, charge these much higher interest rates than you would generally be able to. A car title loan is, um, you would think of it like a payday loan. It is, again, a short-term, high-cost loan. What's um, different about a car title loan is that the borrower hands over the title to their car to the lender. And if they end up defaulting, um, the um, lender has the ability to take that car away. 
Now, what we've seen is um, that doesn't happen too often. It does happen sometimes, um, but as you can imagine, having that type of power yeah. over a borrower, if they need that car to get to work, to get to school, to get food for their family, mm-hmm. that's incredibly powerful for um, the lender to have. And so what doesn't typically happen is that they you know, repossess the car, sell it. Um, what more likely happens is what we were talking about earlier. They they take out another loan yeah. and they get trapped in this cycle. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, something we'd been trying. We were trying a couple of years ago just to get this 36% interest rate cap just on card title loans and, you know, got got not very far in the legislature. I, I know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, you know, part of the reason why this victory is so um, surprising and sweet. Exactly. I I don't want to go over names, but I've had conversations personally with some of uh, the members and 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 you just kind of got this amorphous like it was a frustrating feeling. It wasn't like they, they didn't come out and say, well, against it, but they didn't say we're for it. It was kind of this wishy-washy sort of like, well, looking at that and blah, blah, blah. And it, and it never seemed to materialize into enough traction to get uh, the majority of people down there to to stick their necks out. And so maybe this is an example, and there are a lot of examples like this in doing what we do, whereas when you have a large enough package and, and things get put in there, it's easier for people to vote for because there's other things they can point to and say, yes, I was for X, Y, and Z, and just not talk about the other things. Maybe this is one of those cases. Uh, perhaps it is. Um, I, I, I assume that's the case because um, I know in the car title uh, loan bill a couple of years ago, it was just not, it just wasn't getting much traction. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, my theory on it is, uh, one, again, the Legislative Black Caucus included this in their package, they stuck to their guns when they got a lot of pushback from industry, and they deserve an enormous amount of credit. And yeah, it's we're talking about it on Martin Luther King Day. Yep. And, you know, a lot of folks in Democratic leadership, even if they may have at another time wanted to say no on something like this, they, this they understood in the moment that the Black Caucus agenda was very important, and they, they right. just they, they weren't going to say no. You know, Abe, uh, if, if I recall this bill when it went to the floor and, and you know, this I'm sure you're like me this past couple of days. You just, it's just kind of like a blur in terms of what yeah. you may have heard or heard or dreamt or wasn't sure because it was late at night. But it, when this bill went to the House floor, is this the one where a couple of Republicans stood up and, 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 and took note of it and said they could support it? I think it was. Oh, absolutely. It, it passed yeah. 110 to nothing on the House side. Right. And we okay. got. Right. Um, Republican votes for it on the Senate, including the incoming um, Senate majority, excuse me, minority leader, McConchie. And that's been our experience in the past. Um, You know, I had a lot of good conversations on the car title loan uh, bill with Republicans who saw this as really harmful to their communities. Um, And one thing that I'm hopeful, given those bipartisan votes, is that we can build momentum on the federal level. Um, my congressman, Representative Chuy Garcia from Chicago, is the sponsor of a 36% interest rate cap national bill. It has bipartisan support, although it's just one Republican from Wisconsin. Um, so, you know, we're hmm. we're hoping to work with some of the Illinois, you know, state level Republicans um, to maybe lobby with us um, their congressional counterparts and see if we can build some more bipartisan support. Uh, from Illinois at the national level. That's interesting because I thought there was a federal cap, but does that just pertain to members of the military? Is that what that it's is? It's active service members, yes. So okay. the, the military um, saw this as a problem, as a readiness <laughs> problem, um, because 
um, active service members often would have short-term cash needs, right. and we used to see these predatory lenders not only in low-income neighborhoods, but right outside military bases, bases. And, right. and places where um, service members were. So we've had for a while um, the 36% cap uh, for active service members, but not for veterans uh, and not for um, you know members of the general population. Um, and so um, the the federal legislation is the, mm-hmm. the Veterans and Consumers Fair um, Lending Act. So it, it kind of we're, we're trying to build off of the yeah, history good. that we have with we'll have with, with that. military. Yeah. yeah. Um, a one final question. So uh, that is just leaving my little size brain here. This um, so if. Um, I think you started by saying something along the lines of I think some people find it shocking that it's capped at 36 percent. And I think most people would say that's 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 crazy. Um, so I know we're we're kind of this law now prevents over 36 percent. So you can't have this, you know, 297 percent thing that was going on. 36 uh, percent is a lot. And that interest accumulates very quickly. Is this going to uh, significantly address the problem or do we have the same problem, just a little less of it? Or is it hard to I, say? I think it will significantly address the problem. Okay. Um, certainly there may, you know, it may still be expensive for low-income folks to get access to credit or access to cash. And it certainly won't address that. I mean, that's the underlying problem is is poverty and people having uh, not a lot of income and not a lot of wealth. So yeah. it's not going to address that. But what what you do see with an interest rate cap like this is it does end the business model where where the business model is to trap people in the cycle. And so I think we're going to see that go away. Um, people may still you know have to pay more than when you might think they should to get access to some cash on a short-term basis. Um, but when you're talking about 36%, it's much less likely to trap people, and you're going to get lenders who, who their business model is is to be responsible with their lending. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic that this will address at least the, the debt trap problem. Again, um, addressing poverty is a, is a much bigger challenge. Oh, yeah, sure, um, and, sure. And something um, – um, that's going to take a lot more work. No, absolutely. But this is definitely a step in the right direction, and it's something that's va- sorely needed. And and this is one of those common man sense arguments that uh, I think most people, when they hear this, they kind of they 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 do express outrage that somebody could charge that level of interest and get away with it. It's very uh, it's sad that this has been the practice for so long, but now it's not. So we, now we got a cap at thirty six percent, and hopefully, to your point, we'll see uh, some alleviation of of poverty and people getting trapped um, beyond their means. Abe, thanks so much for taking some time this morning. Uh, happy Martin Luther King Day to you, uh, albeit early. And uh, thanks for all your great work on this. And uh, yeah, see, every once in a while, it does work out, right? Yeah, sometimes <laughs> after many years of change coming slow, it comes really fast. Yeah, exactly. Um, thanks for having me on. You never know. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, thanks, to Abe, for joining us. And uh, just a quick note here before we uh, have to say goodbye. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the program, um, a lot of changes this week, a lot of news coming out of Springfield. Uh, uh, we plan these shows you know, a couple of days in advance. And um, so next show uh, in the third week in February. We'll be well along the legislative session, and uh, it will be under the leadership of uh, the newly uh, elected um, 
Speaker of the House, Chris Welch, who is a, uh, I think he's been in the House since uh, 2012, uh, much publicized change um, now with uh, Illinois not having the leadership of, of Speaker Madigan, and uh, that changes that. That will bring, or will be uh, significant or not. We will see. Um, so I just want to make note of that. And um, there are more changes in Springfield uh, coming up with uh, Bill Brady, uh, the Senate Minority Leader, no longer being an elected. Uh, the election of Dan McConkey from uh, uh, the northern part of, of the state here. And uh, so there's some changes coming in Illinois. Um, obviously, we do need more changes, but uh, leadership is uh, perhaps where it will start. So we'll see where that brings us. We'll continue advocating for the things we do in the year ahead. And uh, so hopefully uh, with a new president that will be inaugurated in a couple days here, new leadership, um, perhaps uh, we'll get some, uh, we'll address some of the issues that are so important to many. This is Bob Gilligan of the Catholic Conference. Uh, thanks for listening to our program today. Happy Martin Luther King Day to everybody. Uh, have a good day and a good week. We'll talk to you again on the third Monday in February.